Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Trigger warning, if you find anything spoken about in today's episode distressing, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. So for something a bit different, I'm doing a solo episode this time around. I've always said that the podcast isn't about me, it's about everyone else, but that means it is about me, that includes me. And I suppose I've been guilty of in the past hiding behind guests a bit. You know, it's one thing to have people come on the show, tell their stories, have me prompt them along, throw in a bit of my own story along the way, but the focus is never really on me. It's on everyone else talking about what they've been through and I'm very comfortable doing that. I'm much less comfortable doing this and and being the one who's talking the whole time and talking about me. But for me to lead by example and practice what I preach, I have to be able to talk about this stuff as well. It's not fair for me to ask everyone else to do it and then not do it myself. So this episode, I'm going to be talking about my life, uh, what led to the podcast, uh, stuff that I go through, and I guess it's the stuff that you haven't heard before. So to start off with, I want to talk about my friend, Jamo Exendaris. So me and Jamo met back in 2015. As many young men do, our relationship was bonded, dancing around like idiots in nightclubs and pumping up our guns in the gym. But it was much deeper than that. Like we really bonded, I think, over our shared passion for life and wanting to get the most out of life, be our best selves. And we became friends at a time where I was going off to start my career as a video journalist in, in Port Lincoln and JMO uh, was studying to be an investment banker and working in security at the time. I moved away to the country when we were really good friends uh, and I wouldn't actually see him in person that often, but our relationship was largely on the phone, talking for two, three hours at a time, basically just inspiring each other and, and laughing about life and the challenges and the pressures and making each other feel better at the end of the day. And he was one of my main supports at that time in my life and someone that I would catch up with pretty regularly for a chat. And he felt the same way about me. He probably talked to me about things that he wouldn't really talk to many people about. And we would really help pump each other up. So that was quite a special connection that we had. And that continued over four years that I knew JMO. So I was in Port Lincoln and then I was there for nine months as a journalist. And that was at the age of 22. So I moved out of home, moved to a new city and started a career all at the same time. And before that, I'd just been living at home with mum and dad, getting looked after, not having to worry about these things. I'd just been through uni, spent most of my uni degree partying, had a pretty smooth run up to that point. And so then all of a sudden I was I was out of home looking after myself. Uh, I moved into a, a shack on a hill surrounded by horses with no appliances to start off with. So it was a pretty big culture shock and I was suddenly under quite a bit of pressure and JMO got it because he was trying to finish his degree. He was dealing with some really bad injuries that he'd got to his Achilles. He was also working in in security, trying to look after his mom, who was a single mom, and his younger brother uh, after losing his dad. So he was under a fair bit of pressure as well, and we'd always make each other feel better. 
and uh, psych each other up. And that continued into me moving to Townsville. I worked for seven years in Townsville for a year and a half. And while I was doing that, uh, he finished his degree and um, moved to Sydney uh, to try and make it as an investment banker. And all this time, you know, we, we'd call each other up and he'd ring me and he'd be feeling down about something or you would need picking up and we'd have this chat and it would just always be motivational and we'd tell it like it is and really share things with each other that otherwise uh, he wouldn't be voicing. And I just felt like he was probably the most likely to succeed out of anyone that I knew. He was just relentless. He was built like a tank. You know, he was extremely physically fit and he just had this mindset that he was going to succeed and he was going to squeeze the most out of life. And if you had to ask me like, who's going to make it, I would have said it's going to be JMO and other people that knew him would have said the same thing. That was the image that he wanted to portray and he was under heaps of pressure and he put himself under a lot of pressure and he didn't share how he was really feeling and, and the struggles that he was going through a lot of that time. And even though we were really close, I didn't know the depths of just how much he was struggling um, until after he died by suicide. So I was in Townsville for a year and a half. That was 2017 to 2018. Then I moved back to Adelaide to work for Channel 7 in Adelaide. And during that time, um, he was in Sydney working as an investment banker. First job didn't work out. He was super driven and, and super specific about what he wanted to do. First job didn't work out. He ended up being unemployed. He was stressed out about that, as you can imagine, felt shame for not living up to his own expectations. You know, felt like he was a, a failure, even though there's no way he wasn't gonna succeed if he would have stayed in it until it worked out. So in his mind, he wasn't living up to his own standards and perhaps he felt like he was a burden on others that loved him. And I think the main problem was he was out in Sydney living alone, isolated, and just trapped with the thoughts in his head. And from speaking to so many men on this podcast, that is a common major factor in what leads to suicide and leads to people really struggling mentally is being isolated. It's those thoughts in your head and not getting any separation from them. It's not speaking them out loud so that people can tell you, hey, actually that doesn't make much sense or give you another perspective. And the longer that that festers and builds up in your mind, the more you believe it and you don't get any separation from that. I think it can very easily become overwhelming and, and you can't see a way out of it. He was in Sydney. He'd quit this job. He didn't have another job to go to. Uh, he was really struggling to pay his rent. He didn't know what he was going to do. And I remember speaking to him on the phone, hearing all this, being concerned, hearing the tone of his voice. Um, but there was this undertone of, but I'm still going to make it happen. You know, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to be defeated. And me knowing him as the most resilient person I knew, and, and I, I said to him, I said, bro, like, just come back. Just come back to Adelaide. There's no shame in, in coming back. You haven't failed. Like, just reset. Look after yourself. And the most important thing is that you're okay because this stuff, although it seems really important, it doesn't matter as much as your health. And he was like, no, nah, I have to be here. I have to stay here. I'm going to make it happen. And because I believed in him so much uh, and what he was about, I ended that phone conversation by saying, I believe in you, bro. Like, if anyone can do it, it's you. He said that that made him feel better and he left that conversation feeling lighter and I felt like it was going to be all right. 
And that was the last time that I spoke to him. I got a, a call from another person and they let me know that he had passed away. And I just remember I was halfway through a news shift at the time and I got that call in the morning and I, remember I just went into shock and I didn't know what way was up. Uh, initially, I tried to keep working because uh, I just I was completely discombobulated, but I ended up just totally breaking down, being driven home by one of my mates who I was working with. And then I went through shock. Like for those who've never been through shock, it's a pretty hard feeling to explain, but pretty much couldn't take in any information or really describe how I was feeling or have much memory of what happened for about 24, 48 hours. Because the the reality of something that horrific is just so hard to comprehend. You're like, how can that possibly be true? How can that person actually be gone? Like this can't, this can't be real. Your brain doesn't get it, can't compute it. But it is the reality. And as impossible as it seems, it doesn't change the fact that that person's not gonna come back. And that was the moment that really took the rose colored glasses off my eyes because fortunately to that point in my life, I hadn't been struck by tragedy. I hadn't had to go through anything really brutally tragic and awful like that. So that really rocked my reality and my perception and changed who I am, I think. Um, and then went through the stages of grief with that. So from it being super overwhelming to uh, every now and then, bursting into tears or feeling emotional when I hear a song that reminds me of him and that's sort of where it's at now and well now I'm at a place where I can remember him for all his strengths and what he gave me and try to embody some of what he was myself and look back and just be grateful that I, I met someone that had that impact on me and that I've been able to do something that's had a positive impact on so many other people which can be attributed to his legacy even though his life ended so tragically. That was the hardest thing I've ever been through. That was the worst day of my life and the funeral was a close second. That was so hard to watch, especially his mum be so utterly destroyed by such a horrible thing. And to see hundreds of people there who were all so upset by that, who clearly had a lot of time for JMO, but when he was in that, in that spiral of depression and struggling so much you wouldn't have been able to see that and I suppose that's part of the tragedy of suicide. I haven't been suicidal myself but I've certainly heard plenty of stories from the men on the show. Like when you're in that moment and, and everything's so overwhelming, the pain's so extreme that you just will do anything for it to end. So it's not about being selfish. You can't think about other people in that moment. You can't see a way out of it and it becomes that the only solution is that. And men in particular are very final in their actions and will actually follow through on that. I think the majority of people who might be suicidal at one time in their life, if they can live through that 24 hours, that 48 hours, they actually don't wanna die. And they can live on to live great lives and get past it and, and realize that that was a moment in time that they could survive and that things were gonna change and it wasn't always gonna be as bad as it was at that moment. But if you make that, that permanent solution to a temporary problem in that moment, then you can never go back. One of the hardest things to try to comprehend about it is like, it was just a split second decision. And if you hadn't made that decision, things would be so different, but life's brutal like that. I went to see a psychologist, which I was put onto through my work. And I had a bad experience with 
a psychologist. So on the second session I went there, I'd fully opened up. I'd been in tears trying to process this trauma. And that psychologist said, hey, you know, reincarnation is a proven fact and your friend's going to come back as something else. That wasn't a suggestion. That wasn't a way of thinking about things. That's what he said was actually the reality. And that really put me off and made me feel betrayed and, and like I'd opened up to someone who was a kook, basically. And that really put me off going back. And although I completely believe in going to see a psychologist and we encourage young men to go and do that, and I really think that I should. And since then, I've, I've been back to the doctor. I've got a mental health plan and I've Honestly, I've been put off by the wait list by having to wait three months to go and see someone and I haven't prioritized it enough. If you were to ask me, I'd say, yeah, I could benefit from it. There's various things in my life that I do need to talk about. I probably never processed that trauma like I should have and I should go and do it. But yeah, I still haven't prioritized it enough to actually do that. I get the difficulty of going to see someone to actually talk about those things and the cost involved and the hassle involved and the waiting involved, you know, it's put me off. And I was at a men's health presentation this morning with Dr. Zach Seidler from Movember talking and he said that there's more men than ever accessing services now, but 45% of them won't stick it out because they have a bad experience. We don't get the help we need. And then we're really reluctant to actually go back. So that's massive. We've got to do something differently in how health services are actually connecting with men. And we can't say men have to change, men are the problem. It's the way that the health system's communicating with men that needs to adapt so that so many men aren't falling through the net. Now, I'll definitely go back and try again. I haven't given up on psychology. I know that's because I didn't find the right person to mesh with me and that it's totally valid and I would get something out of that. But yeah, that's the truth. I haven't prioritized it enough. And I see the irony in that given that this is such a massive part of my life and I know how important that is, but I still haven't done it. So I started the podcast as a way of doing something about losing my friend and, and feeling that insufferable pain and how bad that was and then recognizing how much of a problem this is. Like I never really thought about suicide before that happened. I didn't know seven men a day die in Australia by suicide and nine people in total and that young men struggle so much to deal with their mental health and talk about things and put that front up. We have that bravado that you know, we're all good and, you know, to not be all good isn't cool and don't bring the mood down. Like, you don't want to be someone who's going to kill the vibe. No one wants to hang around that person that's complaining. Like, if you're a man, you should just handle it and, you know, be in good spirits, get the job done. I've certainly experienced that in myself and, and in the men that I've been around. But then I've also experienced when people get the opportunity to open up they're desperate to do it. Men are waiting for that chance to be able to talk about how they actually feel. And every single man that I've ever had on this podcast has left saying, wow, that was a, a cathartic experience. I love being able to get that off my chest and talk about that and think about that in a certain way. And even not on the podcast, just people that I talk to in day-to-day -day life and connect on that level. It's a good thing. It's a good feeling. It's, it's important to be able to get that stuff off our chest and, and see it differently and get that perspective. Like that is just massively valuable to us in our lives. So I realized that there was not really any platforms for young men in particular to tell their stories. There's not many examples that you see 
on social media or on TV or whatever it is where you're seeing young guys under 40, just everyday blokes say, yeah, this is my life. This is what I've been through. It hasn't all been sunshine and roses. In fact, far from it. Some parts have been really hard and really dark and uh, shameful, embarrassing, and the sorts of things that I've been conditioned to think that I shouldn't talk about, that no one should know about, that I should keep to myself. And we know that that has disastrous consequences. So the idea with this platform is let's show men other examples of men just like them who've been through the same or worse, who found a reason to keep going, who found a way to dig themselves out from that abyss and to plant seeds of hope in people's minds who are watching the show and listening to the show that, hey, if that guy can do it, I guess I'm not alone and there's no shame in it and there is hope. There's always hope. There's a way out. If I can just talk about how I'm feeling with one person or reframe the way I'm looking at a particular situation and I can't afford to just bottle this and not share it with anyone ever and think that it's going to go away. And I definitely have had that mentality myself in the past and I know plenty of others have. It's the most natural thing in the world, I think, for men in particular. But this podcast is all about showing that vulnerability and being open and honest is a strength, not a weakness. It makes you so much more effective. It makes you someone that people can connect with. It makes you love yourself more and it makes you a much healthier man. So that's really what this is all about. Since I've been doing the podcast, I've had a number of other mates who have been suicidal, who've been right at that rock bottom. And because of the role that I have and what I do, they've been able to speak to me about that. And I've been able to be there for them on that day or a couple of days. And that's made some difference to them getting through that. And that's given me a lot of hope and all the more reason to do this show because those guys are perfect examples of men who were at rock bottom on a particular day, but they lived through that day and now they're great. Their lives are so much better. They're different men. They're able to have the perspective on how they felt at that time and that that wasn't going to be them forever and now they're okay. And I think that's so many men. And what I want is men to feel like when they're having that day, and it's too much, it's too overwhelming, they want to take themselves out, that they reach out to someone, that they're able to talk and that hopefully that they've created some sort of a network where someone's going to come to them and help them through that day. That's a massive part of the motivation for what I do. And then not just in terms of being suicidal, but preventative health along the way, talking about things that you know we might perceive as not being that bad, that we might be tempted to just keep to ourselves can you be the friend that people feel comfortable opening up to about that stuff? Are you the one who's going to come across as non-judgmental, who's able to talk about that stuff themselves and be a real leader? I think that's the kind of men we need, is the kind of person that can stand up and say, I'm not perfect, far from it, but I can admit to that. And that means that you, my friend or my family or my colleague, can talk to me about whatever it is that you're going through as well. So that's the kind of culture that we're trying to create. And I think it's happening slowly over time. You see more and more examples of other people doing podcasts or pages on socials or whatever it is being part of this movement. And we're definitely seeing progress. It's just, it's a generational change. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a, a collective effort over time that's gonna change things. It's a real battle to keep this podcast going. I do it in this studio at 
pod booth in Adelaide, which is state of the art. It's worth paying good money for because there's nearly 3 million podcasts out there in the world. And if you just do a backyard job that doesn't have good quality audio and video, I don't think you can really promote your show. And if people listen to the quality of it, it's not very good. They're probably just going to skip over it. So I believe it has to be really good quality to be able to cut through. And I've got enough to manage trying to figure out how best to make the conversation flow along without doing all the technical stuff. So my producer Rory handling that is totally worth it. But there's a big cost involved with doing that. And ever since I started over three years ago, I've had to find different ways to try to fund that just to pay for production. And this isn't a thing I get paid for, it's strictly volunteer. I've also pumped thousands of hours into editing and promoting the show myself. And people often ask me if I do this full time and I always laugh because I don't make any money off this at all. Like it's purely volunteer and I actually have to constantly try to find a way to fund it. So. It is cool that people think I do it full time because it means that I'm pumping out enough content, I suppose, to warrant that. But it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, it's really hard to try to find sponsors who are, have aligned values to try to, yeah, help me do this because you can't do anything alone. But that said, I've always found a way to keep it going and I will because it means so much to me. Through starting this, uh, Youngblood, the podcast, which became Youngblood Media, which is my business, and also make podcasts for some other businesses and involved with workshops for schools and things of that nature. I've become labeled as an entrepreneur and sometimes I even get the opportunities to talk about being an entrepreneur. And the image of the entrepreneur is someone who's created their own thing and they're just, they live by no one's rules and they're bowling out of control and they got it all sorted out and everyone's looking up to them as someone who managed to beat the system, right? And that's just not how I feel at all. And sometimes I feel like don't ask me how to be a successful entrepreneur when I'm still driving a 2003 Mitsubishi Lancer with wind up windows that I've been driving for 13 years. But then I have to remind myself that that doesn't really matter. What really matters is creating something that you actually believe in that makes an impact that gives you a sense of purpose and that helps other people. But I still fucking so sick of that car though sometimes. <laughs> Shout out the Mitsubishi Lancer though. It's never let me down. I, I talk shit about it all the time, but it's been to Port Lincoln, it's been to Townsville, it's been back to Adelaide. It has done me good up to this point. So my life right now, I work at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute as a media and production officer. So I pretty much do all the media for SAMRI, connecting our researchers with journalists for the paper, radio, TV, getting them publicity for all the amazing research they do. So that's my full-time job that I do. And then I run the podcast. So all the, the, the booking, the planning, the recording, the editing, the socials, all that stuff, that's my passion project. And then Youngblood Media, so making shows for other businesses and working in schools and that sort of thing. So very busy and it was hard to get to this point doing those years as a, as a reporter to be able to build up the credibility to do my own thing and, and be the person who does this this podcasting and, and does my role at Samri, like it was tough to get to that point and, and to earn that. So before I did this, as I mentioned, I was a news reporter, mostly for Channel 7 uh, in Townsville and in Adelaide and that, experience really made me as a young professional it was super tough it was a really difficult job like massive time pressure every day in difficult situations where people are really distressed i was 
usually the overnight crime reporter. So most of the stories I was going to were armed robberies, house fires, stabbings, fatal accidents, you name it. A lot of the same stuff and not nice stuff. And you see the news on TV, but you don't necessarily know what goes into gathering it. It's a lot of looking for CCTV and uh, Rory, my producer's smiling now because he was actually one of my cameramen that I worked with in the news. And we would spend endless hours looking for CCTV or trying to wait for someone who just uh, had their house broken into the night before to come home from being in hospital or being at the cop shop so that we could interview them. Or the worst of all was going to a fatal accident and seeing someone get scraped off the road and then having to find out their identity and then find out where their family lives and then go to their house within hours to ask them how they felt about the fact that their kid just died. So it was a pretty brutal job in that way and one that definitely developed a lot of skills within me that I'm very grateful for and gave me some really good perspective. But I noticed that it put me on edge, made me pretty anxious and started to make me a bit bitter in the way that I viewed things as well because I was just surrounded by so much negativity all the time and I'm a very positive person naturally. So I know I know I wanted to tell stories, but I didn't feel like I was telling stories a lot of the time that had a lot of value or that were doing a lot of good and it was stressing me out. So I ended up quitting that job in 2020 during COVID. I actually went on Centrelink for a while and then ended up with my job at Samri uh, all the while doing the podcast. So telling those stories, but different kind of stories that have that impact that I control, that mean something and do something positive. That whole time in my early 20s, so 22 to 25, being away um, in the country and interstate, being a young reporter and trying to work my way up and doing massive hours and doing some pretty tough jobs. And before that, even at uni, I was volunteering at Fresh 92.7 doing the the news and telling my own story for like four years. So I've actually done thousands of interviews before even getting to the point of doing podcasting. So it's not like you just rock up and start interviewing and it's easy. Hopefully, if you're listening to these podcasts and it's an engaging conversation that you feel flows along and you can just be a fly on the wall and it's really easy to listen to. There's a real knack to that, which I've honed and still learning all the time. And just before I started working, I had a pretty chaotic early 20s. So like I said before, I was going through uni. I was living at my parents' house. They were looking after me still and just having a good time. Got really into partying, going out, drinking, drugs, just with no real self-awareness. Never because... I was trying to get away from my reality or never for anything negative. I just thought it was really fun and that that was a way to experience life and that everyone else was doing it at the time. And I got really sucked into that scene and that sort of became a bit of an identity for me. I understand that when speaking to guys who've had a similar experience being a party boy, like I certainly lived that life for a certain time. And I'm grateful that I ended up getting the opportunity to have to move away to grow up and get a job and look after myself and not do that anymore because that forced me to change that sort of behavior. It's not something that I necessarily regret. Like I'm glad I, I got away from it and I managed to get away largely unscathed from it. And it was never anything ugly, but certainly on reflection, you see that it was pretty fortunate that I managed to get off largely scot-free from that. And that typical mentality that young guys have of 
well, nothing bad's happened before when I've done this, so it won't happen. And I am invincible and I can push the envelope and no one can stop me. You know, I was guilty of having that that mentality and I was fortunate that, yeah, it was okay, but it can easily not be and you can easily get yourself in situations which become ugly quickly. My personal life now, I'm incredibly lucky and I'm incredibly grateful. I've got amazing friends. I've got a group of friends who are absolute legends that I love. And then I've got random friends all over the place that I'll catch up with every three months, six months to a year or just chat to on the phone every now and then. Just so many people that I connect with who I'm just, yeah, really blessed to have in my life. And I think as you get older, I think it's harder to make friends and people have less and less friends. And I don't think it's about quantity, it's about quality, but I certainly have that in my life. And that's something that I really value, having friends that you can be frank with and have a laugh with and do stuff with. Same can be said of my family, like my parents are just the most supportive, loving, just beautiful people that you could ever meet. And they always have been, they've always put me first. They've always told me that they love me more than anything and prioritize me and just made me feel loved and cared for. And you can easily take that for granted in your younger life, but I certainly don't now. And I'm yes, incredibly grateful for my parents and the love that they've shown me and what they've done for me, opportunities that they've given me. Got an incredible girlfriend who is unbelievably supportive and really gets me and loves me for who I am. And I love her for who she is. That's a beautiful thing. So like all the stuff that really matters in life, I think, which is the people in it and how you connect with them and how they connect with you. I couldn't ask for much more in that regard. So I'm super grateful for that. And I think I've worked out at a fairly young age that the other stuff, you know, the car, the house, the stuff that you have on paper, that, that pales in comparison to that connection that will really see you through life. And that's really what's going to count in the end. Uh, I don't think I'm ever going to lose sight of that. I train like a madman. I always have I've been going to the gym most days for the last decade or so. Uh, and I've also been doing martial arts pretty regularly for the last few years. So... It started out as it does for most young guys where it was you just want to look jacked because you want everyone to respect you for your muscular size. And when I was younger in school, I was super skinny. I'd get paid out for being uh, anorexic. I wasn't actually anorexic. I was just very thin. I'd get paid out. I'd get called bones by like people at school and my own family. So I think that affected me. Uh, and I got super into yeah bodybuilding and lifting weights after school. And that became a whole thing. And then with that came the, the partying and the whole uh, Ziz Stereos mentality. I fully lived that life, even though I thought it was kind of dumb the whole time. I definitely embodied it, which is kind of funny. Back then, training was all about how you looked and I suppose the vanity aspect of it. And in the last few years, it's definitely shifted where it's important to me to maintain the body, but it's mostly about the mental aspect of it. If I can't train for days in, in a row, it definitely affects my mental state and I can get into a real funk and not feel like myself because it energizes me, gets those positive endorphins going and it's just who I am, just becomes a, a real lifestyle of that's what you're used to is feeling really good and being fit and healthy. So I really rate that. But there's definitely been some probably overt body image elements to that as well, which are still prevalent. So I'll feel self-conscious if I'm not at a certain body fat percentage 
<laughs> you guys will notice I always wear, especially Rory will laugh for this, I always wear tight shirts because I can't, I can't deal with having clothes that hang off at all because <laughs> mentally I just have to look like I'm muscular no matter what I'm wearing. <laughs> so stuff like that that people would laugh at and like you normally wouldn't <laughs> share but that's just something that goes on in my head. I'm not obsessed with eating a perfect diet or I don't have to do every workout but I certainly have in my head that I have to look a certain way and act a certain way in order to love myself, I suppose. I think part of that's healthy and part of that probably bridges on being a bit too far, but yeah, that's the case. Part of the reason that I connect so much with Youngblood, even as the host and the men who come on the show, is that I've experienced so many of the things that guys come on and talk about. As I mentioned, I've been someone who's used drugs. I've been a womanizer. I've been someone who's acted compulsively and impulsively and paid the price for that. That's why it's so interesting to me is because I want the answers to a lot of these questions. The questions that I'm asking, I'm asking them for myself. I know that's how we get the story across and that's how we learn from whoever the guest is. But a lot of the time I've been through my own version of whatever's been talked about and I've had my own questions and my own struggles with it and I wanna learn from it. So that's a lot of what my motivation is behind that too. And it's not like I'm doing the show as someone who's holier than thou, who's got it all worked out, who's looking at the person next to me saying, oh, it must be tough to feel emotions and go through struggles and I haven't got any experience with that myself, but tell me what that's like. It's not like that. It's I've been through this too, or I am going through it, or maybe one day I will go through it, so tell me how I might navigate that. That's really what I get out of it. So I've certainly been guilty of bottling stuff up and pushing things away till they become a way bigger problem. And I've shut down emotionally and pushed people away and not been open to talking about things. And I've acted like that while doing the podcast. You know, I've been a big hypocrite at times because actually expressing and having those super uncomfortable moments have just seemed too much at the time or I've been afraid of what the result might be if I was to actually open up about those things. So I get it. Like It's one of the hardest things that there is to do to actually really come forward with that stuff and potentially risk embarrassment or judgment or putting someone offside or rejection it's a super hard thing to do and i've certainly avoided doing it at times because i thought in my head it would be easier for me right now if i just pretend like it's all good if i keep this to myself and i've certainly had the mentality at times when there's a problem of i'm just going to fix it i'm going to solve it myself without telling anyone because then i won't have to admit something to someone that I don't want to admit because it might change their view of me or it'll be uncomfortable in the, in the very least. So wouldn't it be good if I could just solve this all on my own without having to bother anyone else? I won't have to admit that I'm struggling with something because I can just handle it. That's a dangerous mindset. We know that. A big part of what we talk about on this show is the typical male mentality, especially of, I got this, it's all good. And when it's not all good, I'm going to handle it. This is my burden to bear. Sometimes I'll have people on the show talking about their deepest, darkest things that they've been through and how they were able to open up. And that's what we're pushing. And I do truly believe in it, in the importance of it. But I don't always do it. I don't always do it. I've lived with 
guilt and shame and anxiety and that pressure that looms over you. And I know what it feels like to go about your life with that simmering in the background. And sometimes you know what you should do to make yourself feel better. I could say, well, from all the people that I've talked to and, and understanding the situation that I'm in, I know I should do this and this, but in the moment you don't, you don't do that because it's gonna to be too uncomfortable or you'd rather retreat back to whatever just feels easier at the time. So there's a difference between knowing what you should do and who you should speak to and how you should handle something and actually doing that thing and overcoming that fear. And that's a constant battle. You don't just learn to do it, do it once and then you're good for life. You don't struggle with things anymore. You don't have to have that internal battle with yourself. That's ongoing and I have that just as much as anyone else. Uh, my health has been really bad this year. So my actual physical health, ever since I got COVID, uh, at Christmas, I've just got chest infections every six to eight weeks. I've got about every single virus going around this year. And because I've got really bad asthma, every time I get a virus, I get acute bronchitis. And then I have a period of a week to two weeks where I can't breathe properly or can't breathe at all, really. And then I can't sleep, can't lie down. Had to go to hospital this year for it. And like that makes it really hard, kills your momentum. Like I said, I'm very physically active, so not being able to breathe properly, sleep properly, being worried about that and why that's gotten so much worse since getting COVID, that's been a really hard thing to deal with. Because I think momentum and getting ahead and building something like young blood, you've got to have a lot of energy and getting that momentum killed every couple of months by an illness has been like real tough to try to battle through. And then there's been other other health things as well, you know, financial pressure at times, just standard stuff that heaps of people experience. And the kinds of things, because it's not a they're not major issues like what people who come on this podcast talk about a lot of the time, I certainly have a tendency to think, oh, it's not worth talking about and just live with it and deal with it, get on with it, handle it yourself, um, which never makes you feel better but I'm still guilty of having that mindset from time to time. And I don't think it's, um, it's not about, you have to tell everyone, depending on what the issue is. You don't have to say, oh, okay, well, if I'm gonna feel better, I need to share this with absolutely everyone and be a completely open book. But I think you gotta be able to not just keep it to yourself. You have to find someone to speak to about whatever the issue is. Because as long as we just keep it within ourselves, and even if it's that subtle, like sort of low level anxiety or stress, over time that affects us, that builds up and that ends up just making our lives so much harder to live. And it's the kind of thing that you can cover up and you can hide and because it's not a disaster on any one day, you don't really think it's a problem. And then over time you're like, man, I've been living with this this feeling, with this anxiety, with this this sort of sense that stuff's not all right for a long time and it ends up building up and being a real problem. I've had relationships end in the past and caused a lot of pain, partly because I just refused to open up and talk about how I actually felt and connect because I felt embarrassed or I just didn't want to be vulnerable, basically. And then that would be coupled with the guilt of knowing that I run a show which is literally about how men need to be vulnerable and express these things and then in my own life, I wouldn't be doing it. I see the irony 
in having a platform like this, which was built on vulnerability and then refusing to do it myself. But I guess that's part of the point of what we're talking about. It's like, it's very hard to do. It's hard to be vulnerable when it counts. And there's a reason why so many of us struggle with that is because we're worried about what the result might be and because in the moment it's a lot easier to not do it and to brush it off and get away with whatever it is until you can't get away with it anymore. These days I make a much more conscious effort to be open about how I'm actually feeling and what I'm going through and share that with the people who need to hear that and do my best to not be that person that lets those things build up, those little subtle things maybe or maybe bigger things that give me that feeling of anxiety and being on edge and feeling like things aren't quite right and rather than thinking, yeah, I'm just going to handle it because I'm the man, that's what I do. I don't want to worry anyone. I don't want to change anyone's perception of me. I'll just handle it. Trying to change that mentality and say, actually, no, the more mature thing to do the more effective thing to do, the thing that's going to make me feel better, make everyone else feel better, is to be forthcoming about that and tell the truth and open up to the right person enough so that I don't feel like I'm alone going through whatever that thing is and that actually when I get someone else's perspective and someone's able to show me that they care and they love me as I do for so many other people, that makes it all a lot easier to deal with um, so I'm trying to do a better job of that. I've certainly been guilty of trying to maintain the image of the guy who's all good all the time, who's so good that I can spend a lot of my time just helping other people because I'm good. And that's not always the case. People will say, how are you going or what's going on? Even my friends and I won't actually tell them the truth sometimes. So I've got empathy for everyone else who experiences the same sort of thing. You know, you might want to speak up about something, but you might be weighing up, is that actually going to help? I think one of the difficulties with trying to talk about uncomfortable things is the thought process of, is this actually going to make things better? Or is this going to put more pressure on me? If I share this with this person, will that change the way that they think about me? And will that make things harder for them will it make things harder for me is it going to help fix the situation you know so it's all well and good to say yeah just open up express yourself about everything tell everyone about everything i don't think that's very realistic but you have to be able to have the capacity to tell someone and when we talk about vulnerability for men i think sometimes men are put off by the idea that okay so vulnerability is good be vulnerable that means that I need to show all my emotions and I've got to let the world know and cry and just be this super emotional, sensitive guy. And that's not what we're saying. I think there's definitely a time to be stoic. There's definitely a time to soldier on. And I think certain situations call for that. But you've got to be able to reflect and have the self-awareness to say, actually, behind this mask and this front that I've got up, I'm struggling with this thing. I can't cope with it on my own. 
That's not a reflection of me not being enough of a man or being a weak person. It's just a reality. And I need to be able to share that with the right person. I struggle to do the podcast when my own health is not very good. I'm a massive believer that in order to help other people and commit your time and energy to a project or to service of some kind, you have to be able to look after yourself. And sometimes it's not actually down to you. I'd say I'd looked after myself better this year than I have any other year, yet I've been sicker this year and struggled more this year than I have most other years. And that's not really my fault, but these are just things that we have to deal with in life sometimes. And you've got to be able to keep yourself in check and look after your own well-being in order to be able to help other people. And this is such a massive undertaking that so much goes into that if I'm not on that level where I'm really clicking and feeling good and firing on all cylinders, it's very hard to worry about other people's problems and try to push that stuff out there. I don't want everyone to pity me or whatever. Uh, and then, again, these are the sort of things that I wouldn't even talk about because for that very reason, I don't want it to come across as like I'm having a sook about things that aren't that big of a deal. Yeah, that's just the, the reality of trying to keep something going when you've got stuff happening in your own life, but I suppose that's everyone. So why is it taking you over a hundred episodes to finally open up and do one about yourself? Because that's a lot harder for me than it is to be a facilitator for someone else's story. It's much more challenging for me to talk about these things. And I suppose I haven't been ready to talk about some of the things that I go through or that it's not worth talking about. Uh, which is kind of stupid because I guess the whole platform's about talking about things. And I'm, I'm definitely someone who's just a deflector. And although this is a public platform, I've wanted to sort of take that attention away from me and, and put it on to others. Not as necessarily as um, this altruistic thing, but just because, yeah, that's easier and it serves the purpose and I can do it without having to front up to things uh, and speak about stuff that is hard for me to talk about. But the whole point of this is doing that. So it wouldn't be right for me to not do what everyone else does and, and talk about the stuff that needs to be spoken about, no matter how hard it is. I am so overcome by gratitude that I've been able to create this platform where so many men come on the show not knowing me at all, often never having told their story at all. And they want to tell it on Youngblood because they know that it's going to come across in the way that they want it to come across. And they understand what this platform is about, why it's important. And that I get so many messages from men on a regular basis talking about how this podcast is helping them or how they've had their own experience and listening to someone else's story helped them view it in a different way or gave them some hope or encouraged them to reach out. You know, that's really what it's all about. And I haven't lost sight of that fact that that's what I do it for. And that's what I'll always do it for. And it's very special to have created something where I can speak to people on that level at the drop of a hat and they'll talk to me about these things that are so interesting and so personal and so important. And that's because this is a special space that 
everyone who knows young blood and connects with it understands and respects and that didn't exist before and that is the coolest thing that i've ever done in my life so as long as i can and as long as it does good i'll push to keep it going because i truly believe in it and i know a lot of other people do and a lot of other people have really given me a lot of help to try to get it to where it is now i haven't done it alone and yeah we can't do it alone that's it for this episode thanks to our local business supporters heard financial and first national real estate making these podcasts isn't cheap and we can't do it alone if you'd like to become a supporter please send an email to callum at youngbloodmedia.com.au if you're getting some value out of the show please give us a quick rate and review on apple podcasts and spotify it really helps us out you can watch every episode in studio quality video on Spotify and our YouTube channel, Young Blood Men's Mental Health. We go by the same name on Instagram and Facebook and follow Young Blood Mental Health on TikTok. Subscribe to our e-news through our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone who needs to hear it. We're all in this together. Catch you next time.